Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 5th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This past Saturday, six days ago, Melissa and I attended an unannounced League of the South demonstration in Tennessee, unannounced for which reason I could not indicate that we would attend in my announcement for last week's program. Of course, we really did go to see Melissa's family as well and fulfill other commitments which we had. Of course, the scheduled demonstration, League of the South demonstration at Sycamore Shoals State Park in Tennessee was canceled and I hope to write about that soon. Christagenia is not a news outlet and I have no compulsion to write about that immediately. The demonstration went very well. The demonstration that we did have, the unannounced demonstration, went very well. And we were very well received by the local population of Newport, Tennessee. Nevertheless, for us it was a difficult road trip as our Jeep suffered a mechanical breakdown, nearly a second breakdown after having that first one repaired, and we had some other challenges along the way. We made it home a day later and one visit shorter than we had originally planned as we had hoped to stop in North Georgia to see some friends there. Yahweh willing, we will have another opportunity to do that in the coming months. I have had some people who criticize us, meaning identity Christians, on the basis that Christian identity is something which is relatively new in history. So the other day in social media I explained why Christian identity is such a new denomination. And of course we know that it's not really a denomination, but they call it that. We know that it is the way and there is no other. Here are five simple reasons why it is so new. First, throughout the Middle Ages the question of race in Europe was not an issue as most folks kept to their own kind and race mixing was largely a result of prostitution or defeat in war. Second, The Roman Catholic Church had restrictions on copying scripture for general dissemination and even tried to hold the line on that once the printing press was invented. But the printing press ultimately defeated the policy by brute force. 3. Once men got their hands on copies of the Bible and could read it for themselves. They began reading and realizing how far the so-called Orthodox churches had wandered from the Gospel of Christ. This was the chief reason for the Reformation and the cause of a multiplicity of denominations which followed. 4. The colonial period led British, German, and French academics to treasure troves of information previously unavailable through exploration and archaeology. And five, 
Once archaeological records of ancient population migrations became available, and certain Protestants realized the implications, British Israel and then Christian identity began to develop from around the second quarter of the 19th century. The conclusion is that if you cannot revise your thinking based on new information, or at least on information that is new to you, then you are a fool. You are a slave. You will remain a slave. In the end, we will all be Christian identity, whether you like it or not. As far as religious problems with this, they are all cleared up once it is realized that in Scripture, a church is not a series of dogmas. A church is not institutionalized doctrines. A church is a body of people. An ecclesia, which is the original term in Greek, is a body of people called out for a specific purpose. When we treat each other, when we act like Christians, dogmas should not be obstacles. Not at all. Of course, the full story of history is a lot more complicated than that. But those are the basic steps which brought us to where we are today. And we will not find anything in history or in archaeology which shall ever take us off this course. Now we shall present Identifying the Biblical Beast of the Field, Part 5 but I have another long digression and that's because these papers of Clifton's are fairly short they're each about 3,500 words my average podcast my average Bible study podcast is probably about 85 to 9,500 words so I have an opportunity to talk about some shorter topics that I usually wouldn't discuss until I had enough information collected for an exhaustive podcast. In the last few introductions to segments in the series, I have been addressing so-called Orthodox Christianity. I call it so-called because it is really an orthodoxy of the empire and not one that represents the teachings of the Apostles of Christ. Here I will give yet another example of that. A proper Christian should be a lowercase Orthodox Christian, one who makes every effort to follow the teachings of the way found in the Gospel, the Law, the Prophets, and the Apostles. A couple of weeks ago, and that way is a narrow path, by the way, not a wide one. A couple of weeks ago, I was engaged in a discussion of orthodoxy on social media, one of many which I have had recently. I wish that I had kept a copy of this one, but I can't find it now, because two weeks is like forever at Facebook. 
There was one particular gentleman who seemed to be well versed in orthodox doctrines and who wrote a paragraph explaining that the orthodox priesthood is the continuation of the Levitical priesthood but for Christians rather than Jews because mere believers were now the people of God. He, writing that paragraph, he proved beyond all doubt the Judaization of the Christian churches. In Tennessee, this past Saturday evening, after our demonstration, we had a long fellowship. I had similar discussions with a couple of men who also profess Eastern Orthodoxy, and they also made the claim that the Orthodox priesthood is grounded in Scripture in much the same way. It is appalling to me how little such people actually know of the Scriptures, even of the epistles of the apostles. But in that context, I really had no time to make a proper explanation. So I will address the issue here. One friend insisted that the, the early so-called church fathers themselves were orthodox priests and that they wrote of an orthodox priesthood. He claimed that Ignatius of Antioch was his authority for this assertion. This is simply not true and it is my estimation that the individual never actually read the writings of Ignatius or of most of the other early Christian writers. In the epistles which are not considered to be spurious, only one time in his epistle to the Philadelphians does Ignatius mention the word priest. This is found in chapter 9, which is subtitled, The Old Testament is Good, the New Testament is Better. And Ignatius wrote, The priests indeed are good, considering the priests of the Old Testament. But the high priest is better, speaking of Yahshua Christ, or Jesus Christ, to whom the Holy of Holies has been committed, and who alone has been trusted with the secrets of God. He is the door of the Father, by which enter in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and the prophets and the apostles and the church, the ecclesia, the body of people. All these have for their object the attaining to the unity of God. But the gospel possesses something transcendent or above the former dispensation. These the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, his passion and resurrection. For the beloved prophets announced him, but the gospel is the perfection of immortality. All these things are good together if you believe in love. There is a longer version of this epistle, which is also considered spurious, where this chapter is many times its original length and has references to Christian high priests a term which it used synonymously for bishops and it also makes reference to presbyters and deacons. 
This, as well as many other interpolations in the writings of the early so-called church fathers, was obviously added to support the structure of the later Roman Catholic Church. This is also the problem with Eastern Orthodoxy. They claim to be founded on the Apostles and the early so-called Church Fathers. But by their own admission, they do not actually follow any of the anti-Nicene Christian writers. The Christian writers from before the Council of Nicaea. There is a website for the Greek Orthodox Church of America which has an article titled The Basic Sources of the Teachings of the Eastern Orthodox Church. It admits that it follows only the confessions of Ignatius, of Justin Martyr's apology, not even of all of Justin's writings, just his apology, of Irenaeus, and of Origen, who were all men of the first two, or in the case of Origen, two and a half, centuries of Christianity, but it does not claim to follow their doctrines, only their confessions, and it cannot follow them because it can be demonstrated that they all differed from one another in many aspects. And notice that they didn't mention Polycarp or Clement of Rome, who were the, probably the oldest two surviving Christian writers, early Christian writers. So further along in this article, under the subtitle, The Ecumenical Synods, we read the following. The doctrine of the teaching of the Bible, and I no longer have a mouse, which is amazing. My mouse battery died in the middle of the program. There is a website for the Greek Orthodox Church of America, which has an article titled The Basic Sources of the Teachings of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And later on in the article, under the subtitle, the Ecumenical Synods, we read the following. The doctrinal teaching of the Bible and the Ecumenical Synods constitutes the content of the faith and the movable basis, unmovable basis, of orthodox dogmatics. And my mouse is still out of commission. I'll just have to use the keyboard. I'm sorry for the interruption. The body of the church, which consists of clergy and laymen, is the carrier of the infallibility of the church, where the Holy Spirit protects it from making error. But the voice of the church for expressing its infallibility is its highest authority. The ecumenical synod, in which the whole Pleroma, now they consider the Pleroma the people of the church, where the Greek word Pleroma actually means fullness. The whole Pleroma, 
or people of the church, is represented by its bishops. The decisions of these synods are sources of the teaching of the church. There are utterances of the synods, or oroi. That's actually a, seems to be the plural of a word for boundary, which directly expresses the dogmatical teaching of the church. And some canons which hold dogmatical teachings, although they mainly deal with discipline and administration in the church. The ecumenical synods are the main sources of the truths of the church. The symbol symbol of Nicaea, or Nicaea in some pronunciations, but that Latin C, and the Greeks really didn't have such a letter. The Latin C is actually hard. The symbol of Nicaea, established by the first and second synods, is repeatedly restated in the five ecumenical synods that followed through the 8th century. So we see that the authority of the Greek Orthodox Church by its own admission is based on events which happened rather late in history. There is no example in the New Testament for these ecumenical synods, none whatsoever. Paul of Tarsus called together bishops in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, but they were all bishops from Ephesus. He called them to Miletus so that he could speak to them. But I don't see one example supporting the idea of an ecumenical synod as determining the source of scripture or, or determining the truth of scripture. All I see are examples that men should turn to the scriptures themselves and independently determine the truth like the Berians had done. If any man or organization claims infallibility, it can never even correct its own mistakes because they would be realizing that things that they did in the past weren't infallible after all. The apostles themselves would never have claimed an infallibility for men or a heavenly protection from infallibility. Paul of Tarsus himself admitted to being a sinner and a wretched man in Romans chapter 7, where Peter visited the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. We read, and as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. The Orthodox Church certainly does not follow the apostles of Christ. But finally, we find which of these so-called church fathers the Orthodox Church does claim to follow, where under the subtitle, the Fathers of the Church. We read, Another contributing source to the knowledge of the Orthodox faith are some outstanding fathers of the Church. Some outstanding fathers of the Church. So, they picked and chose which Church Fathers they would follow. Probably a pretty arbitrary decision some outstanding fathers of the church who wrote 
discourses and homilies on subjects of faith, which the ecumenical synods accepted as canonical teachings. In other words, putting the writings of these church fathers on the same level as scripture. These prominent fathers are Athanasius the Great. Now Christ said, why do you call me good? But we could call these men great, right? Christ said, why do you call me good? Only one is good, your father in heaven. But we could call these men great, right? Athanasius the Great who circa 295 A.D. for his letter enumerating the canonical books of the Bible. Basil the Great, who lived from 330 to 379, for his discourse sent to Amphilochion, in which he enumerates the heresies. Parts of this epistle were divided into 92 canons, with five of them containing material of symbolic expression of faith, as if Paul's expression or definition of the faith is not enough. Gregory of Nazietesis, circa 329 to 390 BC, AD, I'm sorry, for writings concerning the canonical books of the Bible, and Bishop Amphilochius of Iconion, circa 340-395 AD, for his listing of the canonical books of the Bible. The oldest listing, I believe, is the Muratorian Canon. Writings of these fathers bear the seal of canonical ratification. In other words, these men who lived at the very end of the third, and in the case of Athanasius, and throughout the 4th century AD, these men, their writings are being put on the level of, on the same level of those of the apostles by this Orthodox Church. And then it continues and it says, not included here are writings of other fathers, which became canons concerning order and discipline. For describing here, for described here are only those sources dealing with the faith. These, then, are the prominent fathers of the post-Nicene period through the 4th century, whose writings became canonical sources of the teachings of the Church, having been adopted by the ecumenical synods. And with this it should be evident that the teachings of the Orthodox Church are developed based on opinions of Scripture from the beginning of the 4th century AD, or the time when Christians were finally able, for the most part, to come out of hiding because the fear of persecution and execution was dissipating. But at this same time, anyone could publicly claim to be a Christian regardless of what they were when Christianity was still outlawed and Christians were liable to be executed. The last major persecution begun under Diocletian lasted until the Edict of Toleration was declared in 313 AD. These men who determined what church doctrine and canon would be it was safe for them to declare themselves Christians or for them to be Christians, even if they were 
and I don't doubt it, even if they were sincere about their profession, but they should never be elevated to the level of the apostles. Canon meaning rule. Before this time, among the writings of the anti-Nicene so-called church fathers, those who wrote in the first two and a half centuries, there is no mention of Christian priests except for the citations of First Peter chapter 2. Every mention of priests in the versions of these writings which are generally accepted to be authentic refer to either pagan priests, Levitical priests, Jewish priests, or to Christ as the priest. In a Christian context, Christ is the only priest, and that is what we see described in all of the earliest Christian writers in their original authentic writings. Now let us examine what Peter said in reference to priests in chapter 2 of his first epistle from the King James Version. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the phrases of him, the, the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We would read generation properly as race. Otherwise, nobody can claim to be chosen by God after Peter's readers had passed on. In any event, we can see that the chosen race is the royal priesthood, which is a holy nation and a peculiar people. And Peter was writing to Christians, not to Jews. He did not say a nation with priests. He said that the holy nation was a royal priesthood. There's a huge difference. However we want to interpret the general statement, it should be evident that each and every Christian is a priest. All of the earliest Christian writers also profess agreement with Paul of Tarsus, who explained that Christ alone is the high priest of the Christian faith. The Orthodox Church attempts to make every bishop a high priest, which is something which is not found in Scripture. Speaking of the passing of the Levitical priesthood, Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 7, according to the King James Version, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law, we change the law written in our hearts and the commandments of Christ. Jeremiah chapter 31. For he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe of which no man, in other words, not to the Levites, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there arises another priest, 
who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifies, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw nigh unto God. And, Paul here is going to prove that there is only one priest, and inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priests, for those priests were made without an oath, but this is with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord will swear and not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, meaning Christ, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Only he lives forever. Only he is priest, period. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Seeing, and he said, no one gets to the Father except by me. Seeing, he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. So our, our only priest is separate from sinners. All men are sinners who needs not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's for this he did once when he offered up himself nobody can make that better or add to that for the law makes men high priests which have infirmity but the word of the oath which was since the law makes the son who is consecrated for evermore here I am going to read a few paragraphs from Clement of Rome. Probably the, mm, the earliest Christian writer we have records of after the Apostles. I mean, it might be Polycarp, but I think it's probably Clement of Rome. <sighs> My memory is faulty. Please flip a coin or look it up in Wikipedia, right? from the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, where he is at first describing the priestly orders of the Old Covenant, and then he describes the order of the New Covenant. From chapter 50, I'm sorry, chapter 40, let us preserve, and, and the subtitles here are from the editors, let us preserve in the church the order appointed by God. These things, therefore, being manifest to us. And since we look into the depths of the divine knowledge, it behooves us to do all things in a proper order, which the Lord has commanded us to perform at stated times. He has enjoined offerings to be presented and service to be performed to him, and that not thoughtlessly or irregularly, but at the appointed times and hours, where and by whom he desires these things to be done. To be done. 
he himself has fixed by his own supreme will in order that all things being piously done according to his good pleasure may be acceptable unto him. <clears throat> Those therefore who present their offerings at the appointed times are accepted and blessed. For inasmuch as they follow the laws of the Lord, they sin not. For his own peculiar services are assigned to the high priest, and their own proper place is prescribed to the priests, and their own special ministrations devolve on the Levites. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. The layman is bound by the laws that pertain to layman. And then in the next chapter, a continuation of the same subject. Let every one of you, brethren, give thanks to God in his own order, living in all good conscience, with becoming gravity, <clears throat> that is, with fitting gravity, and not going beyond the rule of the ministry prescribed to him, in other words, to each individual. Not in every place, brethren, are the daily sacrifices offered, or the peace offerings, or the sin offerings, or the trespass offerings, but in Jerusalem only, and even there they are not offered in any place, but only at the altar before the temple. Clement is making an example of this Levitical dispensation. That which is offered being first carefully examined by the high priest and the ministers already mentioned. Those, therefore, who do anything beyond that which is agreeable to his will are punished with death. We saw that in the Old Testament, in the gainsaying of Korah, for instance. <clears throat> Ye see, brethren, that the greater the knowledge that has been vouchsafed to us, the greater also is the danger to which we are exposed, meaning that it's easier to trespass and you will be held all the more accountable because you have that knowledge. And then in chapter 42, the order of ministers in the church as opposed to the Old Testament Levitical order. The apostles have preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done so from God. Christ therefore was sent forth by God and the apostles by Christ. Both these appointments then were made in an orderly way according to the will of God. Having therefore received their orders and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and established in the word of God, with full assurance of the Holy Ghost, they went forth proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, and thus preaching through countries and cities, they appointed the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons. Now that word deacon is from the Greek word diakonos. And in the King James Version, the word diakonos, which literally means a servant, is translated sometimes as minister, and sometimes as servant, and sometimes as deacon. But it's all the same Greek word. To be bishops and deacons of those who should afterwards believe, nor was this any new thing, meaning those of Israel, of course, nor was this any new thing, since indeed many ages before it was written concerning 
bishops and deacons. For thus saith the scripture in a certain place, I will appoint their bishops in righteousness and their deacons in faith. And the last statement is a citation which is apparently <clears throat> from the Septuagint version of Isaiah chapter 60 verse 17, but that reads a little differently. So we may read in Brenton's translation the full passage, the full verse, <clears throat> and for brass I will bring thee gold, and for iron I will bring thee silver, and instead of wood I will bring thee brass, and instead of stones, iron. In other words, Yahweh will bless his people when they return to him. And I will make thy princes peaceable, and thine overseers righteous. Brenton's translation is an accurate and literal rendering of the Greek, wherefore overseers, the Greek word is the same that the church translations usually represent as bishops. That word princes is archontes, which is actually rulers or princes. But here, we see no word of Christian so-called priests in the instructions of Clement of Rome, who lived in the first century and who was said to be a student of the Apostle John. Rather, we see, we see bishops, which are only overseers of a Christian assembly, and deacons, which are only servants of a Christian assembly, just as the original apostles had instructed their, in their epistles. In the 4th century, <clears throat> the Orthodox priests did not replace the Levitical priests, and Orthodox priests did not appear until the 4th century. In truth, many of these so-called priests transformed themselves into Christian priests from the pagan priesthood because as Christianity spread they saw greater job security and greater opportunity for gain. But for the Christian and according to the word of Paul of Tarsus only Yahshua Christ himself replaced the Levitical priesthood. This is what Ignatius had taught in his authentic epistle to the Philadelphians. And according to Peter, each and every Christian is a priest in the sense of being chosen for service to God. A chosen race. A man who needs a priest puts an intercessor between himself and Christ. I should actually say allows an intercessor between himself and Christ, which the apostles did not command. In my opinion, that is also a form of idolatry. The pagan priest was seen as a bridge to God or to a God which can also be said of the Levitical high priest. 
and which is why both Caesar and Pope use the title Pontiff or the Latin Pontifex, which is a bridge maker, a bridge builder. That's what Pontifex means. Julius Caesar took for himself the title of Chief Bridge Maker, an office which originally belonged to the chief priest and was therefore called the Pontifex Maximus of Rome. But to the contrary, <clears throat> Paul of Tarsus said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So we should perceive that Christ alone is our bridge to God, and we have need of no priest. Then, Paul explained in Romans chapter 8, <coughs> I'm sorry, that the spirit within each of us makes intercession with God on our behalf, and that we can't even understand what, understand what it needs or what it's saying. Then in chapter 2 of his first epistle, John himself said, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. A true Christian must not let another man hold this position which only Christ can fill. As Christ himself said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 3, and call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven, neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. True Christians should have no part with any man who wants to play father or priest. This organized capital C church is how the beasts of the field have become people and have become intermingled with the people of God. In the end, God himself will deny every one of them. Christ will deny every one of them and they shall all be destroyed. With this, we shall commence with Clifton M. Heiser's Identifying the Beasts of the Field, Part 5. In Parts 1 through 4 of this series, I have addressed, and these are Clifton's words, of course, I have addressed the many errors in identifying who the beasts of the field are. In Part 3, I gave substantial evidence that the name of the devil actually also means ape in Arabic, according to Adam Clark. Also in part three, with data from the Greek passed on to me by William Fink, I came into substantial evidence that indeed we are dealing with the idea of an ape. From a Greek-English lexicon by Liddell and Scott on page 1232, on the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word seder, 
as it was translated in the Septuagint, we find the following definition. Hanokentora, hey Hanokentora, or ho Hanokentoros, the difference being, being female and male, a kind of tailless ape, as the Greek writer Ahelion used the term, a kind of demon haunting wild places, citing Isaiah from the Septuagint, chapters 13 and 34. Clifton says, notice especially Isaiah 34, 14. So what it amounts to is that if one observes someone who appears to be a combination of man and ape, odds are one is looking at a devil. Then in part number four, part number four of this series, Clifton says, I showed relevant evidence that in early Greek art and sculpture, a satyr or devil was portrayed as an ape. After I had finished part number four, I found more evidence on the internet that in early Greek art and sculpture, satyr meant an ape. And here Clifton cites a Wikipedia discussion page for the article on the satyr. And a subsection of that Wikipedia page, which is subtitled, Satyrs as Apes. And Clifton quotes, Satyrs as Apes. The content, I'm sorry, the concept of satyr as a type of ape is older than the 17th century, meaning that it would be older than Adam Clark, right? The Book of Beasts, T.H. White's translation of a 12th century bestiary, clearly describes the satyr as an ape of some sort. The illustration shows a traditional satyr, but the description is of an ape. Clifton then comments, As one can begin to see, Adam Clark, in his research into the biblical term satyr, did quite well by checking it out in the Arabic. Remember, though, one cannot use the term devil or satyr alone, as it is only one of the collective names or titles for Satan. Reverend Samuel Fallows, in his popular and critical Bible encyclopedia and scriptural dictionary, volume 3, page 1527, explains it thusly. Satan, scripture names or titles. Besides Satan, he is called the devil, the dragon, the evil one, the angel of the bottomless pit, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and the god of this world, Apollyon, Abaddon, Belial, Beelzebub. Satan and devil are the names by which he is more often distinguished than any others, the former being applied to him about 40 times, and the later about 50 times. Clifton makes a note that Fallows overlooked the term serpent. Satan, continuing the 
citation. Satan is a Hebrew word transferred to, or I would say transliterated, transliterated in the English. <coughs> it is derived from a verb which means to lie in wait, to oppose, to be an adversary. Hence the noun denotes an adversary or opposer. Clifton says another commentary that speaks of a goat ape species and the dog-faced baboon is by Jameson Fawcett and Brown volume 3 page 608 on Isaiah chapter 13 verse 21 <coughs> and quoting from that volume the former suits the best suits best the context here Satyr shall dance there. That's the phrase in Isaiah 13.21. The Hebrew sehirim. Sehirim is the plural of seher or satyr in Greek and English. The Hebrew <coughs> sehirim. Sylvan demigods. Sylvan meaning forest. Half man, half goat, believed by the Arabs to haunt these ruins. Probably animals of the goat ape species. And he has in parentheses a word, Vitringa, the name of a species, I'm certain. Devil worshippers who dance amidst the ruins on a certain night. The Hebrew, Sahir, means hairy rough and that's what Esau was called so maybe he was really the first satyr but somehow I doubt it there were probably billions before him applicable to the he-goat the worship of Sahiram whether meaning the he-goat or as Hamilton Smith thinks the dog-faced baboon was accompanied with dances it was really devils that were thus worshipped, citing Leviticus 17.7. They, the Israelites, shall no more, as in Egypt, offer their sacrifices unto devils, or the Sahirim, or satyrs, citing 2 Chronicles 11.15. The reference to 2 Chronicles 11.15 is to the account where Jeroboam won becomes king of the northern ten tribes, the house of Israel, and commands that the people depart from worship at Jerusalem to go off into paganism. So we read, <coughs> and I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm having a problem with my throat this evening. So we read, and he ordained him priests for the high places, and for the devils, and for the calves which he had made my throat, my mouth's battery. I don't know what next. This leads in part to a greater understanding. The satyrs were the demigods of the woodlands and deserts. In his epistle to the Colossians, Paul of Tarsus, in chapter 2, describes paganism as the worshipping of angels, which are ostensibly fallen angels, or they would not insist upon being worshipped.
Speaking of Israel according to the flesh, <clears throat> and in his own time, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that the things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. Here we would assert that once again, that the so-called beast races, which were forever outside of Adamic society, and alien and hostile to it, are indeed related to those devils and were not created by God. Continuing with Clifton, Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary by Youngblood, Bruce, and Harrison on page 59 under Animals of the Bible, Ape, says in part, some commentaries suggest that Isaiah's reference to satyrs who dance and cry to their fellows would not, I'm sorry, would fit the dog-faced baboon honored by the Egyptians. The comparison of the dog-faced baboon to the Negro certainly cannot be overlooked. The later Egyptians, at least those of the post-Nubian period, which was the 25th dynasty, believed this creature to be the inventor of writing and the scribe of the gods. And I will cite a little more on that. It's from an article for the for a dog-faced baboon amulet from the 26th dynasty at the British Museum. Continuing again with Clifton, he says, after discovering all of this new data, I decided to try and find a picture of a dog-faced baboon. I scanned this and I will include it when I post these notes this evening. Immediately, this was in his 1981 edition of Collier's Encyclopedia on volume 3 on page 423. And he says, immediately I was impressed how this baboon was very shaggy over each side of the head, over the neck and upper part of the back, and draping down to the elbow joint of the front legs. But the rump, hips, hind legs, and forearms, from the elbows to the hands, were predominantly bare of any quantity of hair. Most striking of all of this dog-faced baboon's features was its kinky woolly hair where it had hair. Its hair remarkably resembled that of a negroid. And actually the hair looks like a... It looks like the extensions that a she-boon might wear. Or, or a she-boon that had its hair straightened. Almost. Of course, when I say Shibun, I mean female Negro, if we can really call them even female. At the beginning of this article, I have placed an image of an ancient Egyptian amulet representing a dog-faced baboon, which is from the British Museum. The museum curator's comments state that the dog-faced baboon was a creature linked with the moon which is why amulets in its shape usually wear a headdress composed of the full moon and crescent moon. However, in this instance, the lunar element is present 
this instance of the amulet I am describing, which was also used as the image for the announcement to this very program at Christagenia. In this instant, the lunar element is present in the Wedjat eye, the moon eye of the solar falcon, torn out by Set and restored by Thoth. Now this Wedjat eye, this particular dog-faced baboon in the amulet, was actually holding up in its hands. Wedjat means the sound one. The baboon was one of the animal forms in which Toth could manifest himself, especially in his role of writing and scribe of the gods. So he would appear as a baboon. And the baboon form was the inventor of writing and the scribe of the gods. No wonder Negroes think they invented our white culture. The amulet is said to be from the 26th dynasty, around 600 BC. This is very shortly after the Nubian rule of the 25th dynasty, after which Egypt was never again a great society. Continuing with Clifton, <coughs> inasmuch as there are upwards of 20 different Negro racial types, that fact suggests that the various members of the Ape family were the experimental victims with whom the fallen angels committed miscegenation. From a 526-page book entitled Pre-Adamites by Alexander Winchell, and there will be a PDF link to that book in this article. We have a copy of it posted at Christagenia. Printed by S.C. Griggs and Company in London in 1880, I will cite pages 253 and 254. On page 253, Winchell depicts side-by-side -side pictures comparing a female Hottentot to a female gorilla, and from the text we read. The physical aspect of many native Africans, Winchell was actually a university professor at a time when university professors could still speak honestly about race. The physical aspect of Native Africans, of many Native Africans, gives them, beyond question, a decidedly beastly look. This has been remarked again and again. Professor Wyman says, it cannot be denied, however wide the separation, that the Negro and Orang, or Orangutan, do afford the points where man and the brute when the totality of their organization is considered, most nearly approach each other. Here is Cuvier's description of the Boyesman woman known as the Hottentot Venus, and it's easy to find pictures of Venus Hottentot online today, who died in Paris on the 29th of December, 1815, and whose life-size figure I have examined in the Museum of the Jardin des Plantes. She had a way of pouting her lips, she says. He says, I'm sorry. Exactly like that we have observed in the orangutan. Her movements had somewhat had something abrupt and fantastical about them, reminding one of those of the ape. 
Her lips were monstrously large. Her ear was like that of many apes, being small. The tragus weak, and the external border almost obliterated behind. These, he says, after having described the bones of the skeleton, are animal characters. Again, I have never seen a human head more like an ape than that of this woman, if we could call it a woman. I hate to humanize Negroes. Sometimes it's necessary in order to be able to communicate. Now Clifton responds and says, I would highly suggest that when Cuvier observed the Hottentot Venus, stating, reminding one of those of the ape, her lips were monstrously large, her ear was like that of many apes, the bones of the skeleton are animal characters. He was indeed observing an ape, or at least half ape and half fallen angel. We shall now address the angels that sinned. Mention it's Second Peter chapter two verse four. And the angels which kept not their first estate, mentioned at Jude six. For they both represent the sons of God at Genesis chapter six verse two. These quote unquote sons of God are referred to in the Dead Sea Scrolls as sons of heaven, and are not the sons of Cain as some commentaries declare. It is my opinion. As I wrote many years ago in a paper titled The Problem with Genesis 6, 1-4, that the correct reading were the Masoretic text and many editions of the Septuagint has son, have sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, 2 and chapter 6, verse 4. The correct reading is sons of heaven. These would be people, if we should call them people, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fallen angels or their descendants. They may have been called sons of God in some early literature to describe their origin as opposed to the sons of man or Adam, but they were also called sons of heaven, being those who originally rebelled against God or their descendants. Clifton now cites a source that I would rather choose to avoid because it has indeed suffered a great many interpolations. He says, to understand the nature of these angels that sin, I will cite some passages in the book of Jasher. And he starts at Jasher, chapter 4, verse 18. And their judges and rulers went to the daughters of men. This is an interpretation, probably an early rabbinical interpretation, in my opinion, of the events of Genesis, chapter 6. And their judges and rulers went to the daughters of men and took their wives by force from their husbands according to their choice. And the sons of those days took cattle from the cattle of the earth, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, and taught the mixture of animals of one species with the other, in order therewith to provoke the Lord, and God saw the whole earth, and it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth, 
all men and all animals. And Jasher seems to be confounding things from the writings of Enoch, in my opinion, because we don't read anything about animals in Genesis chapter 6, but we read it in Enoch in a slightly different context relating to the same fallen angels. Now Clifton cites the book of Jasher from chapter 23, and he cites a collection of verses from 74 through 86, from verse 71. For the Lord had, I'm sorry, 71 through 86, so we'll start with verse 71. For the Lord had prepared this ram, speaking of the sacrifice of Isaac, of course, <clears throat> from that day to be a burnt offering instead of Isaac. And this ram was advancing to Abraham when Satan caught hold of him and entangled his horns in the thicket, that he might not advance to Abraham in order that Abraham might slay his son. Now, I have to say that the picture that I get in Scripture is that the ram was caught in the thicket so that Abraham could lay hold on him because it would be difficult for a man to actually run and catch a fleeing ram. So, I don't think Satan caught the ram in the thicket. I think Yahweh caught the ram in the thicket so that Abraham could seize it and sacrifice it. That's my opinion from reading the account in Genesis, but we'll roll on with Jasher from verse 73. And Abraham, seeing the ram advancing to him and Satan withholding him, fetched him and brought him before the altar. And he loosened his son Isaac from his binding, and he put the ram in his stead. And Abraham killed the ram upon the altar, and brought it up as an offering in the place of his son Isaac. And Abraham sprinkled some of the blood of the ram upon the altar, and he exclaimed and said, This is in the place of my son, and this may be considered this day as the blood of my son before the Lord. And then on skipping verse 75 for some reason, and going on to 76, And Satan went to Sarah, and he appeared to her in the figure of an old man, very humble and meek, this is what Clifton wants you to see, that Satan appears as a man, and you'll, the reason for this will be apparent later. And Abraham was yet engaged in the burnt offering before the Lord. And he said unto her, Dost thou not know all the work that Abraham has made with thine only son this day? For he took Isaac and built an altar and killed him and brought him up as a sacrifice upon the altar. And Isaac cried and wept before his father, but he looked not at him, neither did he have compassion over him. And Satan repeated these words, and he went away from her. And Sarah heard all the words of Satan, and she imagined him to be an old man from amongst the sons of men who had been with her son, and had come and told her these things. And Clifton is actually going out of his way here to show that Satan can appear to us as a man. I believe that Oh, all we need to see that is the book of Job. We don't really need the book of Jasher, but that's my opinion. 
And finally, Clifton quotes from verse 86 of the chapter. And behold, Satan came again to Sarah in the shape of an old man. And he came and stood before her. And he said unto her, I spoke falsely unto thee. For Abraham did not kill his son, and he is not dead. And when she heard the word, her joy was so exceedingly violent on account of her son that her soul went out through joy. She died and was gathered to her people. And of course, these are all innovations on scripture, which I would not accept as canon. Maybe one of those ancient synods, but not me. Clifton says, the object of quoting these passages from the book of Jasher is to show the reader that Satan and his angel followers have the ability to take on the form of man as well as animals and birds. In my opinion, they actually were men. They were always men. They were never simply spirits in heaven. Clifton says, an example of this can be taken by comparing <coughs> Acts chapter 12 verses 20 through 23 with Josephus's Antiquities book 19, which I have written about before in my Watchman's teaching letters and many brochures. Here, I, I don't know why, but Clifton taught elsewhere that Satan and his angels fell before the creation of Adam, as I have also always taught, and that their place was found no more in heaven. But here Clifton has a, a slight dissonance by depicting Satan as spirit, in my opinion. This isn't our um, only disagreement. I believe that in the end, Clifton agreed with me fully on, on this issue, but evidently when he wrote this particular paper, I don't think he was thinking it all the way through. That's my opinion. Of course, I can't really know because now Clifton has departed from us. I wish I'd have done this program about four months ago, maybe, and, and we would have it a little better. We would be able to discuss that. Clifton now cites, and he's, he's about to cite a comparison between Acts chapter 12 and Josephus's Antiquities book 19 of the same event and he had made this comparison once before earlier in his Watchman's teaching letters. I don't remember exactly when but I do remember having a disagreement on this with him and I will explain that after we present Clifton's comparison from Acts chapter 12 from verses 20 through 23. And Herod, that's a reference to Herod Agrippa I. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. But they came with one accord to him. And having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, they desired peace, 
because their country was nourished by the king's country. Herod ruled over um, Galilee and Trachonitis and those areas at this time. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. In fact, Herod Agrippa won, if, if this, is, this is the right time frame, it's around 43 AD, and he had actually come to rule for a period of three years to unify under his own rule, which was given him by the Romans, just about the entire domain of the first Herod. It was the only time since the death of the first Herod that that was done, and it was dismantled again upon his death, so it only lasted for about three years. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in the royal apparel, sat upon his throne, and made an oration unto them, meaning the people of Tyre and Sidon. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a god, and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Now, Clifton cites another account of the same event from Josephus's Antiquities, Book 19, Chapter 8, Paragraph 2. Now, when Agrippa, Josephus calls him Agrippa, the Bible calls him Herod because he's really Herod Agrippa the first. His son, I believe, Herod Agrippa II, appears in Acts chapter 26. Paul, appeal, Paul appears before him and addresses him in Acts chapter 26. Now, when Agrippa, Herod Agrippa I, had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city Caesarea, which was formerly called Stratos Tower, and there, and this is to the south of Tyre, and there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar, upon his being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety, at which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons, and such as were of dignity throughout his province, on the second day of which, of which shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, and of a contexture truly wonderful, and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the, re by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But as he presently afterwards looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head, 
and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings, as it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him, and he fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain also arose in his belly, and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who is called by you immortal, I am immediately to be hurried away by death. But I am bound to accept of what providence allots as it pleases God. For we have by no means lived ill, but in a splendid and happy manner. Now Josephus was actually a good personal friend of Herod Agrippa II. And for that reason, Josephus was a flatterer of the whole family of Herods, in my opinion, even though he acknowledged on many occasions that they were indeed Edomites and not Israelites. Josephus was actually, I believe, an honest and forthright man who didn't understand the differences, having been raised a Pharisee, in that time he didn't understand the differences between Edomite and Israelite. When he said this, his pain was become violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a little time. But the multitude presently sat in sackcloth with their wives and children after the law of their country, and besought God for the king's recovery. All places were also full of mourning and lamentation. Now the king rested in the high chamber, and as he saw them below lying prostrate on the ground, he could not himself forbear weeping, and when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the fifty-fourth year of his age, and in the seventh year of his reign. For he reigned four years under Caius Caesar, that would be Caligula, I believe. If you didn't catch the difference in the angel at Acts chapter 12, verse 22, and then owl at Josephus's Antiquities, book 19, chapter 8, paragraph 2, which I underlined, you also missed my point, which was Clifton's exclamation. While this does not detract from Clifton's primary thesis, this is probably the most significant disagreement that I ever had with him that remained unresolved during the 19 years that we corresponded or worked together. While Clifton thought that Josephus's owl must have really been an angel, it is my opinion that God only used an owl as a messenger, which is what the word angel means. And just because Herod Agrippa I saw an owl does not mean that he was actually slain by the owl. So while I accept both accounts, that of Luke, and that of Josephus, Josephus as being true, the owl is not necessarily the angel, 
But it could be an angel in the literal sense of messenger. Clifton and I did discuss this, but we never resolved our difference of opinion. There were remarkably few such differences between us, but this was certainly one of them. And yes, I'm still typing. Continuing with Clifton, to document the mixture of angel kind with Adam kind, we will go to the Antinicene Fathers, Volume 8, the Clementine Homilies, Chapters 15 and 18, subtitled The Giants and the Law to the Survivors. Of course, this is one of those early Christian writers that the Orthodox Church doesn't follow. But from their unhallowed intercourse, spurious men sprang, range greater in stature than ordinary men, whom they afterwards called giants, not those dragon-footed giants who waged war against God, as those blasphemous myths of the Greeks do sing, but wild in manners, and greater than men in size. Inasmuch as they were sprung of angels, yet less than angels, and as they were born of women. Since, therefore, the souls of the deceased giants were greater than human souls, inasmuch as they also excelled their bodies, they, as being a new race, were all also called by a new name. And to those who survived in the world, a law was prescribed of God through an angel, how they should live. For being bastards in race of the fire of angels and the blood of women, and therefore liable to desire a certain race of their own, they were anticipated by a certain righteous law, for a certain angel was sent to them by God, declaring to them his will. And Clement may have been citing something in Enoch. I believe that he was. since Enoch does record such things. Clifton says, Today we see the genocide of an entire race before our very eyes. And most consider this phenomenon more normal, even Christian. We use the terms race mixing and miscegenation, but it might be better described as species mixing, actually mankind with animal kind, or as in the days of Noah, angel kind with mankind. Today's mad scientists are already mutating DNA of various kinds in their laboratories, so don't argue that such things are impossible. As verified by scripture, angel kind has the ability to take on the form and functions of man, I would believe that they always were men, that the fall from heaven was symbolic, allegorical. At Josephus's Antiquities, books 18 and 19, he records two instances where angels took on the form of an owl, to which Eusebius, in his church history, agrees in book 2, chapter 10 
and is found in Scripture at Acts chapter 12, verses 19 through 23. For an angel to transform to man, bird, or animal kind is but one step away from cohabitation with them. And instead, the word angel simply means messenger. Although there was a race of these that rebelled against God in ancient times, and the owl could easily have been used as a messenger, since the ancients believed that owls bore evil omens from the gods. Clifton continues, With this, it is clear that we have an incident where an angel appeared to Herod in the form of an owl. In doing so, it was potentially only one step away from procreation with an owl. But it is recorded at Genesis chapter 6 and at Jude that only the rebellious angels engaged in this sort of thing. The story of the angels that left their first estate would take another whole series of papers. I would rather believe that fallen angels had mixed their own kind with animal kind and corrupted the creation of God in other ways, which in any event we can only conjecture. Again, continuing with Clifton. One of the reasons that an angel may have appeared to Herod as an owl is because he was an Edomite. According to the Strong's Enhanced Lexicon in Libronics, at entry number 3917, the Hebrew definition reads in part, the Hebrew definition of owl, Lilith, name of a female goddess, who haunts the desolate places of Edom. No doubt to Herod, this owl was the angel of death. This is found in a prophecy of Isaiah against Edom, Edom in Isaiah chapter 34, specifically in verse 14, where the Hebrew word for Lilith, which is often considered to be the name of a female demon, is rendered in the King James Version as Screech Owl. Clifton now cites another source. From the 1880 Library of Universal Knowledge, <clears throat> Volume 11, pages 139 and 140, under Owl, we read in part, The owl has from early times been deemed a bird of evil omen and has been an object of dislike and dread to the superstitious. This is perhaps partly to be ascribed to the manner with which it is often seen suddenly and unexpectedly to flit by when the twilight is deepening into night, partly to the fact that some of the best-known species frequent ruined buildings, while others haunt the deepest solitudes of woods but no doubt chiefly to the cry of some of the species, hollow and lugubrious, but loud and startling, heard during the hours of darkness, and often by the lonely wanderer. It is evidently from this cry that the name owl is derived, as well as many of its synonyms in other languages, and of the names appropriated in different countries to particular species in most of which the sound oo or ow is predominant, with great variety of accompanying consonants.
Now, there are several, there are two words for owl in Isaiah. In Isaiah 34.11, the word owl is yanshauf, and that owl sound is there. In 34.15, great owl, it's kipows, Q-I-P-P-O-W-Z is the way that Strong's transliterates that. It's probably kipaz, though it has a vav, it's kipows. And in Isaiah 34.14, the screech owl is lilith. So we have three times this word owl, and every time it's a different word. And, and in fact, in Isaiah 35.13, the word owls appears. It appears in the plural, and it's a fourth word. It's simply bath. And that's kind of strange because bath is a word for daughter. So maybe Strong's has an error here. Because the... No, yes, maybe Bible Works has an error here. Isaiah 34, 13 is problematical in Bible Works here. Okay, owl appears at least three times in Isaiah, and it's three different words. And that O-W sound does appear in two of them, but not in Lilith. Many of the owls have also another and very different cry, which has gained for one of them the appellation Screech Owl, and that was actually the Hebrew word Lilith, and to which probably the Latin name Strix, S-T-R-I-X, and some other names are to be referred, which I find that whole last couple of sentences dubious, but that's okay. Clifton now responds and says, this is a great explanation of the superstition associated with an owl as far as it goes. But when it has implications relating to Holy Writ, it takes on a much greater meaning. When the term Seder is used, both in the Old Testament and in the Greek language, to mean devil and half-man and half-goat, respectively, it takes on the significance that anyone of mixed race is the personification of evil, or in other words, a devil or a child of Satan. But when we investigate even further, and find out that in, near, in early Greek art and sculpture that Seder often meant an ape, the significance takes on an even greater perspective. No wonder Paul stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19-21, through 21, what say I then, that the idol is anything, or that that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles, or, as Clifton remarks, Israelite nations, sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to Yahweh. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils, Ye cannot drink the cup of Yahshua and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of Yahshua's table and of the table of devils. When Paul wrote this, he was referring to Leviticus 
Deuteronomy 32.17 and Psalms 106 verses 36 and 37 which I will now quote and substitute the Hebrew term satyrs in place of devils for a better understanding. Leviticus 17.7 where the Hebrew word is Sair or Seder, and they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto satyrs after whom they have gone a whoring, those furry little half-breed creatures out in the forests. This shall be a statute forever unto them throughout their generations. And Deuteronomy 32:17, where the word devils is actually shed, which is a demon, and Clifton sort of airs there because it's not the same. They sacrificed unto satyrs and not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came up newly, whom your fathers feared not. What we do see is that devils are satyrs as well as demons. So we could imagine it perhaps satyrs, these furry little half-breed creatures, are indeed demons. And then in Psalm 106, verse, verses 36 and 37, where we also have Shed, which is a demon, a demon spirit, and they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto satyrs. Clifton says, it appears from all of this that it is pretty damned important to understand the Hebrew term Seder. In spite of the fact that two of those verses didn't really contain Seder, one does and others do as well, so yes, it is pretty important. I've done my very best to present this subject to the reader. If one doesn't agree with what I have undertaken here, Maybe he should study and write his own essay on the subject. Like Cuvier, when I look at a Hottentot Venus, I see a relative of an orangutan with monstrously large lips and ears like that of many apes. Knowing this, how many satyrs do you have in your family tree? Well, I hope that none of my listeners do. Given all of this, considering the present rate of miscegenation, It'll not be long until satyrs, or devils, are swinging from all our family trees. Not only this, but we are told by many sources that this is the Christian thing to do. The bottom line is, if one is not 100% pure white genetically, one is a satyr, or in other words, a devil. Whether we agree with Clifton or not on the nature or abilities of the angels, which fell from heaven, there should be no doubt that the ancients equated demons, satyrs, and ape-like men and considered them all to be devils. Of course, this is not the only proof which we have to our contention that the non-Adamic races originated with the so-called fallen angels. However, altogether it helps to paint a more convincing picture that on this subject, our most ancient predecessors thought as we do.
Next week, Yahweh willing, I hope to return to the Gospel of John. Tomorrow night, Don Fox and our End Times update for October, which has already been recorded. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Thank mm-hmm. you.